In connection with our ongoing series in, on Christian virtues, today we are going to be looking at the Christian virtue of contentment. And there's one passage in the New Testament which deals with this idea of contentment at uh, considerable length. And so that's the passage that we want to look at. It's actually 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10, but the context both before and after is important. So I'm going to read verses 3 to 19. Paul begins in verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such, withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. The Apostle begins this passage by referring to some false teachers, teachers who taught otherwise than the Apostle Paul himself taught. Uh, and the uh, teachings he refers to are teachings contrary, I believe, to the exhortations given in chapters 5 and the first couple of verses of chapter 6. If you look back at those uh, exhortations, you find that Paul begins with a kind of general exhortation, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. He then gives us, in verses 3 to 16, a series of exhortations relating to widows. In verses 17 uh, uh, to 22, uh, exhortation regarding elders. 
in verse 23, an exhortation to Timothy regarding himself, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. And then uh, after a couple of additional verses at the end of that chapter, an exhortation to slaves in verses 1 and 2. And then he says to Timothy, teach and exhort these things at the end of verse 2. And he goes on to say, if anyone teaches otherwise, that is, if there is any false teacher among you who teaches otherwise than what I have just been writing to you, then know about that false teacher and do not have anything to do with him. And he gives us a number of details about these false teachers, which we'll pass over for now, except for the last. One of the characteristics of these false teachers, the apostle says, is that they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That is, they look at godliness as a mean, means to gain profit for themselves or advantage for themselves. And, of course, that means that their godliness is a false and hypocritical godliness. It may be, in some respects, outwardly in conformity to the law of God and to the exhortations which the apostle has given, but it is uh, false and hypocritical because its motive is earthly profit. It's a false godliness driven by greed and covetousness. And so in verses 6 to 10, the verses we're particularly interested in, the apostle talks about covetousness and its opposite, contentment. And he urges Timothy to teach and exhort that the saints should unite a true godliness with contentment, not a false and hypocritical godliness with covetousness. So godliness and contentment go together. Covetousness goes with a hypocritical godliness. And those three words are very important concepts then in this passage. The first concept is godliness. And that's a very important concept, not only in these verses that we're looking at, but throughout 1 Timothy. The word for godliness occurs about eight times in the uh, epistle to Timothy. And it means basically piety or living towards God, living a God-oriented life. We talked about this uh, godliness when we considered 2 Peter 1 verse 6 weeks ago at the beginning of this series. And so we won't go into details about it, but it's a life that's godliness is a life that's lived towards God keeping God always in mind, always having one's thoughts and actions and desires oriented towards God. And that's why the godliness of the false teachers was a false and hypocritical godliness. It was not a godliness oriented towards God. Their lives were oriented towards themselves. Covetousness is self-oriented, not God-oriented. Covetousness, therefore, is not compatible with godliness. The two are mutually exclusive. 
Godliness is towards God. Covetousness is towards self. So that's the first concept. The second concept we have to look at is the concept of contentment as, as it appears here. Now, this is not a word, actually, that occurs frequently in the New Testament. There's a noun form of the word, there's an adjective form of the word, and there's a verbal form of the word. But none of them occurs uh, uh, as frequently as many, many other words in the New Testament. When we consider this whole idea of contentment and the use of that word in the New Testament, we have to understand that the basic idea of that word, I think, because that word is, um, the basic idea of that word is very uh, helpful in understanding the concept of contentment. And that concept of contentment uh, comes from the Greek word in this way, that that Greek word basically means to have enough or to be sufficient. You can see this in a couple of passages in the New Testament. I want to refer to three passages here. Matthew 25, verse 9, first of all. Matthew 25, verse 9, the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and for you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. This is the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, and the foolish virgins' lamps have gone out, and they ask the wise to share their oil with them. And the wise say, No, we can't do that, because then there might not be enough for us. That's the same word that we have in 1 Timothy 6. You see that idea then of an insufficiency. In John chapter 6, verse 7, there's another uh, passage. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little this is just before Jesus performs the miracle of multiplying the loaves. And he has told Philip, feed these people. And Philip says, how are we going to do it? There's not enough bread for them. And if, even if we had 200 denarii, we would not be able to buy enough bread for them. That's the same word again. And then finally, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, and he said, that is, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So you see, the basic idea of that word is to have enough, to have enough money to buy bread, to have enough oil to keep one's lamp burning, to have enough grace to endure through trial. But you might say that in looking at this idea of having enough in these three passages, we have a kind of objective measure by which you can measure whether you have enough or not. You, you know approximately at least how much oil you need to keep your lamp burning. You know at least approximately how much bread you need to feed a multitude. You can make estimates of this. There can be an objective sort of measure in regard to this. 
But when you start to talk about contentment, then I think the measure does not is not any longer an objective measure, but a subjective measure. To be content is to have enough when objectively considered, even as judged by others, it is not enough. And again, we can refer to certain passages that use this same word, but show that it's a much more subjective kind of thing. In Luke chapter 3, verse 14, John advised the soldiers when they asked him, what shall we do? Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, by an objective measure, it is very well possible that the wages of the soldier were sufficient. At least were they were the wages that were agreed upon when he was um, taken on as a soldier. But according to the soldiers themselves, the subjective measure of the soldiers themselves, this might not have been enough. They might have wanted more and have been, therefore, discontented. A much more clear example is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Here, the Apostle Paul is talking about himself, and he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And so what the apostle is saying here is that even when he suffers need by an objective measure, even when he does not abound, even when he is hungry, he can be content. So the having enough is not having enough by an objective measure, but it's having enough by his own subjective measure. And uh, this uh, uh, coincides uh, well with 1 Timothy 6, verse 8, when the apostle says to Timothy, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. He talks about the possibility of having just enough food and clothing to continue one's existence and saying, with that I can be content. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we have another verse along these lines. Let your conduct be without covetousness. And notice how covetousness is opposed to contentment here. It's the opposite of contentment. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So contentment is having enough by one's own subjective measure, having enough. It is the state of mind, then, in which one says, I have enough. Now, it's possible to take this concept and apply it not only to the poor, who may not, by an objective measure, have enough, but also to the rich, who have more than enough. Discontent is by no means the ex exclusive province of the poor. There are many who are rich, 
who would still think that they do not have enough. And again, we can refer to Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound, the apostle says. I know how to be content when I am abounding. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer needs. There are many rich people, for example, who live a very extravagant life, who um, purchase everything that heart could desire for themselves, who are living the life of conspicuous consumption and have money left over still to continue that continuous consumption as long as they want, and who are nevertheless discontented, who think that they do not have enough. And there are also rich misers who hoard their wealth, who deny themselves all kinds of things because wealth in itself is an object for them, who are also discontented, who think that they still, in spite of their wealth, do not have enough. And the reason for the discontent of even the wealthy is that riches do not satisfy. Riches cannot give contentment. There is nothing that can give contentment, real contentment, except God himself. So that's contentment then, saying, I have enough. We also have to look at the concept of covetousness. In this particular passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the word that's used in verse 10, translated by the New King James Version as greediness, is a word that means to stretch, to touch or grasp something. To stretch, to touch or grasp something. You find it used positively in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, when the apostle says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop. That word desire is the same word that we have in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. If a man stretches to touch or to grasp the position of a bishop, you find it also used positively in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16. But now they desire, that is, they stretch themselves to grasp a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. But here in 1 Timothy 6, it's used in a negative sense, and the idea, at least, is the idea of greediness. These are people who are stretching themselves to take hold of riches. Some have strayed from their faith in their greediness, the apostle says. So it has a very negative connotation there. Now, this is not the only word for greed or covetousness in the New Testament. The main word, in fact, is another word altogether, and it's another word that can have either a negative or a positive connotation. In some contexts, it's translated as lust. In other contexts, it's translated as desire. 
Acts 20 verse 33 is one example of this. Paul says there to the Ephesian elders, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, the apostle talks about the 10th commandment and the use of the word covetousness there. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, again, you have also this word. For the apostle says there, not only if a man desires, that is, stretches to grasp the position of a bishop, he desires, that is, he covets a good work. There's the word used in a very positive sense then. Still another word that's closely related anyway is found in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. And there the apostle says, earnestly desire the best gifts. And the word there really means be zealous for the best gifts. But the word here is that word that means to stretch, to grasp something. And this is a description of covetousness, that desire for wealth that makes one pursue wealth as the goal of one's life. You find here in 1 Timothy 6 also uh, two other phrases that describe covetousness. The one is the desire to be rich. That's also in verse, uh, that's in verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And in verse 10, the love of money is a root of all evil. So you have those two phrases also that describe covetousness, the desire to be rich and the love of money. Those phrases are not, I think, quite the same in their connotations. The love of money implies a a love of money for its own sake. Just the accumulation of wealth becomes the goal of some people's lives. That's covetousness, and it's forbidden by God's law. The desire to be rich can be uh, the result of a love of money, simply the uh, desire to accumulate wealth, but it can also be a desire that has a further goal beyond being rich. A man may, for example, desire to be rich so that he can buy for himself office or a position of power somewhere. Or he may desire to be rich so that he can hobnob with the the rich and famous in the world. Or he may desire to be rich so that he can Uh, retire from all work and do his own pleasure for the rest of his life. So desire to be rich is a little bit broader in scope than the love of money, but both of them have at their root the sin of covetousness. And the sin of covetousness is the desire to have something that God has denied us, that God has said you may not have it. I am not going to give it to you. And it may apply to money, but it may apply to 
many other things as well. We desire many things that are contrary to the commandments of God in other areas of life. We may desire our neighbor's wife, or we may desire to destroy our neighbor's reputation, or we may desire to worship a different God, or whatever it may be. Covetousness applies to all the commandments of God, but it is a sin because God has denied us this thing, or it is a sin in this that we want to have more of that thing than he has already given to us. But whatever form it takes, it is the opposite of contentment. Covetousness is always to say, I don't have enough. I want this. I want more of that. I want, I want, I want. But contentment is to say, I have enough. I have no needs. Some unbelievers, I think, do have a kind of contentment, and I can I think we can think of a couple of examples of this. There are people, I think, who are pretty much uh, indifferent to the accumulation of things in this world. In fact, they might be pretty much indifferent to life itself and to everything. They may be very insensible kinds of people, very passive kinds of people who, who can't be bothered to desire anything at all. And there are, of course, those also who are uh, what we might call ascetics, people who are not necessarily indifferent to earthly things, but who deny themselves earthly things for the sake of something beyond them. They may think that this world is evil, and therefore they want to get out of the world, or they may think that this world, though not evil, is too much of a temptation for them, or that it's not good enough, that there are better things that they should seek uh, besides the things of this world. And so they seek something beyond the world. That's what we do as Christians too. But they do not seek God. They deny themselves, therefore, worldly things. And they can be, relatively speaking, content not having those worldly things because they have fixed their eyes on something that belongs to, does not belong to the world. But believers are content because they say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They believe that the Lord will provide what is necessary for them to serve him while they are here in the world. And when the Lord gives very little, as he gave, for example, to his own son, who said he had nowhere to lay his head, when he gives very little, they can say, I have enough. Even when they are hungry, as the Apostle Paul uh, was sometimes hungry, they can say, I have enough. The uh, Hebrews chapter 13, I think, captures this uh, idea of contentment. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The believer says, I have enough because I know that my Father in heaven will never leave me nor forsake me.
Now, let's also talk about some characteristics of contentment. One of the characteristics of contentment is that it applies to earthly things, not to spiritual things. I do not think that it is possible for us, in most instances anyway, to have too great a desire for spiritual things. Those spiritual things are invaluable and we are to desire them, to seek them, and to have a strong passion for them. The only thing I think that we have to be warned against here in these spiritual things is that sometimes these desires for spiritual things may be disproportionate to other spiritual things. And this is what Paul condemns in the Corinthians in chapters 12 and 14. The Corinthians valued very highly the gift of tongues. And Paul says, I wish that you would would desire more of the more valuable gifts, such as prophecy. Because he says, I would rather speak one word of prophecy that others can understand than a thousand words in an unknown tongue. So it's a, it's a virtue, by and large anyway, that applies to earthly things rather than to heavenly things. It's the earthly things that we have to avoid coveting, desiring the wrong thing or desiring the right thing too much, wanting earthly things more than we want heavenly things. So that's first. A second thing that we can point out is that contentment does not lead in the Christian to passivity. I think you can conceive of that. There are people, I think, who who are content with what they have and who become, as a result of their contentment, very passive about life. But believers are not passive. Believers are, while they are content, also ambitious. Not ambitious for earthly advancement and for earthly good, but ambitious to serve God and to serve the neighbor. And therefore, contentment and diligence go hand in hand for the Christian. He's diligent not because he wants earthly things, earthly Um, security, earthly wealth, earthly power, and so on. But he's diligent because he knows that God has called him to work and because he wants to be in a position to be of service to his neighbors. In the second place, contentment does not mean that we have to be indifferent to earthly things that we cannot enjoy the good things that God gives us. The Apostle Paul actually talks about this in 1 Timothy 6, towards the end of the passage we read, when he urges Timothy with regard to the rich, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So enjoy those earthly things, not as the first and most important things of life, but nevertheless enjoy them. And the apostle also condemns 
those who do not uh, look on those things as good things from God in 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Notice that the Apostle Paul calls the doctrine, the teaching that the earthly things are not good, a doctrine of demons. That's not a biblical doctrine. The content man can rejoice in food and clothing, in marriage and children, in lands and houses, in the abundance that God gives. But he keeps them in their proper place. They are never the primary thing for his life. They are never the goal of his life. And he can uh, go from uh, abundant wealth to poverty without losing his contentment. Another thing that we should notice about the biblical concept of contentment is that it is a gift of grace. The Apostle Paul talks about this too in Philippians chapter 4, when he says that he can be content in whatever state he is, he ends that passage by saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content. In whatever state I am, through Christ who strengthens me. And the believer, therefore, is content because he trusts God to supply all his needs, not as the believer himself understands those needs, but as he knows God understands them. He may have, and he knows it, a very different conception of his needs from what God has, but he is willing to rest knowing that God's conception, God's understanding of his needs is a far better understanding than his own. Now we also find in 1 Timothy 6 reasons for contentment. One of the reasons for contentment, the apostle says, is we brought nothing into this world and we can carry nothing out. Implied in that, of course, is the temporary character of all that belongs to this world. It is reserved for fire at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot last, and we cannot carry it with us to the grave, as Psalm 49 points out. We brought nothing in, we came in naked, and we go out naked. We must understand, then, that to set our hearts on these earthly things is folly. It's setting our hearts on something that will not last. Either we will die and carry them, carry nothing away with us, or the Lord Jesus Christ himself will come and will burn it all up with fire. But the other thing that the apostle says as a reason for contentment is that there are great dangers for us in being rich. 
Notice what the Apostle says in verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, I think it's important to note that word fall into here. They fall into temptation and a snare. It's almost as if this is accidental. And I think in many cases it is. Even with Christians, it can be that way. There are those who desire to be rich, who may at first want to be rich for good things. They may want to be rich so that they can help others, so that they can give generously to charities. They may want to be rich so that they can care well, abundantly for their families. They may even want to be rich so that they can use their riches for the good of the kingdom of God. But the riches themselves can lead astray. And they can lead astray because they have this illusory promise of happiness. As Jesus notes in the parable of the sower, weeds, the weeds of covetousness, choke out the word of God. And it's at that point that the riches become the goal in themselves or become a means to earthly goals rather than heavenly goals, that they become an extreme danger for us. It's not easy for any of us, I think, to handle riches well. That's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Riches, there is inherent for us fallen creatures in riches, temptation. A temptation to trust in riches as that which gives happiness or security or which feeds our pride or which grants to us the power that we want or whatever it may be. Riches have this promise of giving us what we need to be content, to be happy, and to live a good life here in the world. They are a snare for us often, and we, through them, often fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, I don't think when Paul talks about lust there that he's talking about First of all, the lust for money. But he's talking about the lusts that follow upon being deceived by money. This attitude of privilege. I can have what I want. And if I can't get it with my money, I'm rich enough and famous enough and uh, superior enough to others to take what I want and to do what I want, no matter what anyone may think. Riches tend not to satisfy, but to feed covetousness. It's not a necessary consequence. There are rich men who live a godly life. But there's a great danger for us in our weakness to be drawn away in that way. And so as we look at verse 9, we see, I think, a path. There, there's a desire to be rich 
which leads to falling into temptations and snares and lusts, which in its turn then leads to destruction and perdition. We should also look in this passage at verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There are some sins that are roots of other sins. And I think there are probably uh, three, two or three of these root sins. One of them is pride, of course. Pride may even dominate in some people over the love of money. There is a lust for power, which may dominate over pride and over love of money in some cases. And there is a love of money. These three lusts, these three desires, are desires that lead to all kinds of other sins, all kinds of other transgressions. Departure from the faith is one of them, as the apostle points out. For the love of money, some have strayed from their faith, the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The love of money drives out the love of spiritual things. The love of money gives rise to many, many other evils. The mistreatment of others, fraud, for example, the murder of others, if not in actual fact, then through the hatred of those uh, from whom one would like to steal or who, whom one envies because they are yet richer than oneself and so on. Love of money is dangerous in that way as well. And it brings with it then also many sorrows. The temptations we've been talking about, the anxieties of caring for it here in the world, the consequences of straying from the faith, the regrets that follow from a life lived in pursuit of wealth, and so on. And then, of course, there's the temptation to pride, which Paul talks about here in verse 17, and also the temptation to trust in those riches which are in themselves uncertain. But godliness, the apostle says, is gain. False godliness combined with covetousness is ultimately loss, loss of all things, loss of life, loss of wealth, loss of God, and eternal destruction and perdition in hell. But godliness is gain. Godliness is gain, godliness with contentment, rather, is gain, because it gives peace of mind and heart, freedom from anxiety about tomorrow, freedom from the bondage of self-service to the freedom of serving God and others, and freedom to pursue what is really worthwhile, the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And godliness with contentment is gained because it leads ultimately to eternal riches. Again, the apostle says this, or suggests this at least in verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things, that is, love of money and so on, and pursue 
righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession. It is a laying up of treasures in heaven. Contentment, therefore, is a wonderful thing to have. It leads one to rest and peace and joy in God and a life of godliness, of being oriented to God and to the service of the neighbor. May God grant us all that gift.